All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the debut episode of the Book Lore Podcast, where we explore the power of literature and celebrate diverse voices in North Carolina by spotlighting local authors here. Uh, With that, I suggest you cozy up, grab a matcha or any drink of your choice, and tune in. I'll I'll be your host, Christina. Today, we have the privilege of inviting Renee Othier as our first guest. Renee is the Charlotte based number one New York Times and international best selling author of three critically acclaimed YA historical fantasy series, namely The Wrath and the Dawn uh, and Flame in the Mist duologies, as well as the ongoing The Beautiful series. Additionally, she is also a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill. Go Heels. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Renee. It is my great pleasure to be here. I did not realize this was your inaugural episode. It's such a privilege to be able to chat with you for the first time. Um, I'm sure as with like, I remember when I was first beginning to be on panels and talking to different people, there's a great deal of nerves that go with it. So like uh, you're doing fantastic and we'll we'll knock this out of the park and I'm excited to uh, dive into your questions. Yeah, of course. It's super exciting. And I'm so glad that you I'm able to interview you as our first guest. So our first question um, is really to like, please introduce yourself in your own words. Um, Like, how are you today? Um, What are your hobbies and what's currently been going on? Oh my goodness. Okay. So that's a lot. Let me see uh, the best way to do this. So hi everyone. My name is Renee Ahdia. I am a, a writer. I write um, books that are historical fantasy. I think now the new tag is romanticy. I haven't decided if I uh, if I like that yet, but it is an appropriate tag because I do like romantic fantasy and I really enjoy having historical elements in the things that I write because I'm a history buff. Um, let me see. I am a child of mixed race, which I think has very heavily influenced a lot of the things I've done in my life, not just creatively, but um literally like uh, I, I feel uh, very um, motivated and inspired to travel um, and to explore as many different cultures and places in the world as possible because I believe that uh, that not only does it make for better humans but it also makes for a better lived experience so um, let me see what else I enjoy cooking I like salsa dancing I really like watching uh, thought-provoking shows and movies and, and funny things too um, I have two kids. Uh, both of them were born uh, during uh, post-pandemic, which was uh, a, a, an interesting challenge all on its own. But um, I feel incredibly privileged to be able to uh, do what I love for a living. Um, I I really, it, it feels, I often have to remind myself what a dream this is, like, especially when you're mired in the technical aspects of being an author, the edits, um, the uh, deadlines, all that kind of stuff. This is such a, a dream come true for me. And um, being able to talk to readers and people who love books as much as I do is one of my favorite things about this job. So I think that's me in a nutshell. Love music, love food, love traveling. Um, I love my family. Uh, my family is... Uh, is everything. Um, there are a lot. I, t- I like to joke with everybody. I'm, I'm extremely tired every day, but I'm also very happy. So I guess if you can say that about your life, you're living a good life. So <laughs> that sounds amazing. That was absolutely amazing. Um, great introduction. Um, <laughs> but so now we will get into our main question. So the first one is, would you be able to tell us about your background and relationship with reading and writing growing up? Um, just essentially your journey towards becoming a full-time author today 
And that could also include like what authors and literature have personally inspired you. Wow. Okay. So I think for me, I wish I were one of those authors who could say that this was something that um, I wanted to do my entire life. It actually wasn't. Although I think uh, uh, just outside of everything, I was always moving towards this because when I came to the U.S., I didn't speak much English. I, I spent the first couple of years of my life in Korea. Uh, my mom is South Korean. And uh, my dad's family is of Scottish descent. And uh, I was born in the U.S. and when I was six weeks old, we moved to Korea and I lived there. And so then when we came back to the U.S., I didn't really speak much English. So I remember really turning to books to sort of help me because I, I, I remember feeling very uh, like lost, especially socially. <laughs> um, and uh, books became sort of a refuge. They were always something I enjoyed as a child, especially being read to, but I turned to books as a refuge. And then early on, um, I think I started embarking on a journey to write fan fiction before it was even a thing. I was really into Nancy Drew books. And um, I think <laughs> I desperately wanted, it, it, it was a self-insert. I wanted to be a part of the trio of Nancy, Bess, and George, and also I didn't see myself and people like me in many of the books that I was reading, even though I consumed uh, books just voraciously. Um, so I wrote like fan fiction that was Nancy Drew with like a self insert. Uh, and that was sort of like the first thing I did. And I remember I wrote it on those, those sort of like ruled paper that has the two lines, but then the center has that little dash that helps you, you know, like <laughs> to like, like organize your cursive and everything like that. Oh, oh. And um, then I went away to school and I, again, I was, I continued to be a voracious reader and I majored at Chapel Hill. Uh, I double majored in political science and English, English, just because I loved, I, I loved to read and, and discuss books. Um, and it was sort of like a no brainer for me to do that. And the poli sci was because I was uh, intending to go to law school. Um, I, I find that when you when you get into this career, you discover a lot of writers are people who either did go or intended to go to law school. And I think a lot of it is because being a good lawyer is largely about being a good storyteller and being somebody who has has, has exhibited some mastery of words. Uh, and I uh, was always intending to go to law school. And then uh, my boyfriend, who's now my husband at the time, when we graduated from Chapel Hill, he graduated a year earlier than I did. And he started working and I wanted to work too, because I just, I wasn't ready mentally to just go into another, you know, couple of years of really intensive school. I wanted to take a break and, you know, stretch out a little bit. And in my free time, I was, uh, I was always writing. I was writing, uh, I wrote short stories. Um, those were the first things I posted online. And back when I was doing this, it was like, pre uh, Wattpad. And so we were using fan fiction and fiction press. And so I had some fan fiction stuff that I loved to read. And then I started writing my own stuff on fiction press and had people sort of come back. And then what, what that is, is like people were able to critique you and you were allowed to critique them. And that sort of exchange, that dialogue that um, it, I guess it's it, it technically my first exposure to really solid editing. I found extremely motivating. I, I loved uh, having people give me feedback and telling me how to make my work better. I, I thought it was very thought provoking. And I think I'll, in, in a weird way, uh, having been raised by a, an Asian mom, uh, that was extremely helpful because my Asian mom never minced words um, and nor did she mince her feedback. Uh, maybe it would have been better on occasion if she had, but she didn't. So I, I have I had a natural thick skin and a desire to make uh, my work better. And And then from there, I sort of, 
had people who were like, you know, you should consider getting published. So I bought a book on getting published and sort of these small steps were taken, but it was always kind of a background thing. And then when I got mired in the, like when I discovered it was really hard to get published writing short stories, I embarked on trying to write a novel. And um, yeah, after that, it was just like these small decisions that were um, really sort of life-changing, but everything moving towards a goal that I hadn't, I guess, really set out for myself until I, I sort of got into it. And then it was just like each goalpost, it was like moving the goalpost basically. So I was like, okay, I'm going to finish a book. All right. I finished the book. Okay. I'm going to try to get an agent. Okay. I got an agent. I'm going to try to sell something. Okay. So it, it was, it was never like, I am going to publish this book and I'm going to be a published author. It was just sort of something I, it came about very organically for me. And I'm thankful for that. Yeah, that's amazing. I one thing I love about this industry is that it's it's such a like melting pot of all sorts of different people are able to sort of find themselves into um this pathway. And with that, you get such an amazing like choice of just all sorts of different perspectives and cultures. And it's definitely something that I definitely appreciate about this reading community. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely and uh so the next question um you actually already touched on it but it was going to be sort of talking about your debut novel the wrath and dawn which is a captivating atmospheric retelling of a thousand and one arabian nights um and so the question was how did your idea for shazi's story come to you and what was sort of your process towards deciding to commit to publishing this tale in particular as your debut? So I think I had always, um, and again, this was an organic thing for me. It was never, I never had a true agenda that I sort of set out in my mind, but everything that I wrote was uh, sort of trying to bring different perspectives to mainstream literature, because uh, I think I uh, <laughs> probably was a, uh, like was, we all are a bit of a narcissist. And I was always sort of um, miffed a bit that there weren't more books that featured characters of mixed race or characters of a, an Asian background where they were the main character rather than the side character. And I had, uh, I guess, main character energy is really what it came, when it came down to. And so I was always sort of trying to do that. And um, and what I remember one one time when uh, because the Wrath and the Dawn was the fifth novel I ever wrote. Um, I was agented off the fourth novel I wrote. Um, that one didn't sell, and then the Wrath and the Dawn sold with my agent, uh, who who I'm still with that same agent. I, I think that she is one of the uh, most brilliant, sharpest minds in the industry, and uh, a damn good person, which I find is is uh, is a gift in and of itself. Um, I think I remember my mom when I couldn't get an agent for the first couple of books that I was writing and I sort of was, was letting her know what was happening. She sort of very bluntly told me, you need to write about white kids. That's why you're not getting an agent. Um, and I was like, you know, you're probably not wrong. Cause this was before 2013. Um, this was like the early 20 teens basically. And I was like, you're probably not wrong, but I don't want to do that. I've never enjoyed like, and, and it was, again, I, it was never my intention. It was what I wanted to read. So I wrote it and she's like, you need to write about white kids and then you'll get uh, a book deal. And then after that you can do this. And so then whenever my 
book that got me my agent didn't sell it featured a half Korean main character I, I decided I wanted to sort of switch gears and move into more historical because I'd always been a fan of history and that at that book that my agent uh, uh, offered representation on was urban fantasy and I had always been fascinated by this uh, this tapestry that was at my uh, my husband's family's home uh, my husband's family is Persian and it was uh, like a very, it was a very expansive tapestry that had many different vignettes all across it. And it looked kind of random. And I remember asking my uh, mother-in-law what it was. And she said it was stories from A Thousand and One Nights. The seed story for A Thousand and One Nights, the story of Scheherazade is actually a Persian story. And it's kind of their version of Beauty and the Beast. And I sort of, um, when I started reading all of them and thinking about the frame narrative that uh, that Sherzad has within this this uh, this world that she's creating and and the way that she's trying to stay alive, essentially, I thought how interesting it would be to uh, have that as a young adult book. And I remember I told my mother I wanted to write a, a, a young adult reimagining of the Arabian Nights, and she said with white kids. And I was like, no, 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 I want to do it with Persian kids. And she said to me in Korean, "Good luck, stupid." And that's sort of been my <laughs> my mantra. And it it it, it did. Um, I'm very fortunate that I think it was like the right time and place for that kind of a story, and that my agent was really enthusiastic about it, and so was my editor. Um, I'm with the same editor still too, uh, as well, which I found is, is it, as the, the longer you are in this career, the more of a rarity that becomes. Um, so yeah, I think that that's how I got my book deal uh, for The Wrath and the Dawn and why I elected to do that. It, it's sort of, again, I, I feel like the, the motto that I try to tell people uh, from my experience when they're trying to get into publishing is that you need to go at your own pace and don't write to trends. Don't keep trying to game the system. Um, I think the people who have the most success, I remember talking about this with Lee, Lee Bardugo and Holly Black, like not too long ago. Uh, well, I guess it was actually a long time ago. This was pre-pandemic um, that like you really just have to write what you want to write and do it well, um, because anytime you try to game the system or try to figure out what the next big thing is going to be you're inadvertently going to stumble because you're you're trying to write to it, not not just to tell a story you have to be focused on the story and I remember Holly sort of saying something about how like when she is the things that she's most passionate about they come across so clearly on the page like Holly's thing is Faye and she does so well with her Faye world because she's so passionate about it um yeah so I think that uh that's that's my long-winded advice <laughs> yeah 100% understood uh our next question is uh, so something about your books that has always stood out to me personally is your really lush and intricate prose, which is full of like rich sensory notes, figurative language, and specific cultural vocabulary, which all culminates in making such an amazing immersive experience. So what does your writing and research process look like and how have you developed it over the years? Well, firstly, thank you so much. Uh, those are those are high compliments, and uh, I those are uh, you know goals that I sort of set for myself in my writing because I uh, the books that I loved, uh, the ones that were most formative in terms of making me fall in love with writing and the written word. Um, I can think especially of Anne Rice, and I found her stuff incredibly vivid and sensory rich and transportive, and it had a sort of hypnotic quality to it that I've always endeavored to emu emulate as best as I can, just because I, I remember the first time 
I completely lost track of time while I was reading. And it was uh, when I was reading Anne Rice's Queen of the Damned. And I remember thinking to myself, how did she do this? It was like some sort of like sorcery to me. Um, and I think that my goal when I'm writing a book is to write something I want to read. And I, I, I think that that, it sounds easy, but it, it, it really isn't, it really isn't something that I think you can take lightly because I think you have to really consider the the things that make you want to the compel you to turn the page, not just about suspense, but about, you know, emotion and relationships and really richly wrought characters that are multidimensional. Um, people who like characters that make you feel, and sometimes it's always not always that they make you feel good. I, I that's why I enjoy it when people were like, "Oh, I was so mad at your book that I threw it across the room," or "I hated this, I hated that." And I'm like, "Wonderful, I made you feel." Um, the worst sort of critique I could possibly get from anybody is, "I read your book and I felt nothing," um, because then I haven't succeeded in my ultimate goal, which is to convey thought and feeling in in black and white and sort of paint a picture with nothing but words. And I remember how wonderful that is for me to be given a set of words and sort of then permission to paint the my own, like my own idea of what this might be in my mind. And that to me is what I think really sets books and reading apart from other sort of entertaining media like TV shows and movies, which I, I love. I'm a, I, a huge, we, we binge watch things. We are passionate about stories, all kinds of stories, my husband and I. Um, but the thing that I really love about writing is the sort of that self-insert. You get to take what you're um, seeing on the page and make it your own. Uh, so that's kind of what I've tried to do. Give room for people to uh, place themselves here. But I want them to feel like they're walking alongside my characters. They're in their shoes. They can feel the kiss of rain on their face. They can feel that character's heartache. That's I think ultimately the goal of any writer, right? To make our readers feel. Yeah, definitely. And you have definitely um, sort of cultivated your craft as all of your books are definitely evidence of that. Um, so moving on to sort of talking about Flame in the Mist, which was your second duology. So how did the inspiration for that come about as you thought about following up your first completed series uh, with a brand new one? And also you could also um, maybe describe the importance of adding diverse voices in the publishing world to you. Sure, sure. So I, with Flame in the Mist, I wanted to write a story that was Asian and I, uh, I wasn't ready to write a very Korean story. I think for me that, uh, that task um, I'm writing a very Korean story right now, actually. And I think that task for me involved uh, uh, acquiring um, more skills because I really wanted to, um, I, I think I was just nervous and I lacked the confidence to fully immerse myself into my family's own world. Because, uh, you know, there's there's always this fear of getting it wrong or like, and I think it's probably from my childhood that I was never Korean enough and never American enough. Um, and so I didn't really have the confidence to do a very Korean story, but I knew I wanted to write something Asian. And I, I remember when I decided I wanted to write something Asian, it was when I heard from another Asian author that her editor had said Asian stories aren't sexy. 
Um, nobody, and, and, and I don't think her editor necessarily was trying to be mean. I think she was trying to be factual and she was applying her knowledge of the public string industry to uh, what she thought her client wanted to do. Asian stories aren't sexy. They don't, like the guy characters aren't sexy. You can't get a buy-in. I find it comical now because this was 10 years ago and you look at something like BTS and like, like, like this huge, like army fan base of, of women from all over the world, uh, of all types of ethnicities and backgrounds who are obsessed with this group of Asian men. So like, but I remember that. And I remember sort of thinking to myself, pardon my language. Well, fuck that. Um, I, I don't, uh, I don't appreciate that. And I, I wanted, I had at that point with the wrath and the dawn, a little bit of industry cachet. And I didn't think my my agent or my editor would push back and they didn't, they were very enthusiastic about it. And I was like, I think I wanna write an Asian story. And I wanted to write a warrior, like a, a warrior girl hero in disguise sort of thing dressed as a boy, because th that's one of the, the the things that I love. You, If you tell me you have a secret prince or a secret princess, or if you tell me that it's a girl who's dressing up as a boy um, and trying to fool everybody, I will buy it. It doesn't matter like, <laughs> like who is writing and I'm like sold. I will read that. Or like, you know, like I love love triangles. There's certain tropes that just hit for me. And that was one of them. And I was uh, as a child obsessed with Japanese manga. And uh, I really loved a lot of uh, Japanese anime. Um, and so I wanted to explore that angle. And I also was coming from a, a half Korean background. And I thought it would be interesting for a half Korean author to sort of explore Japanese culture because that's a very fraught historical relationship between Jap Japan and Korea, between China and Korea. Uh, uh, Korea has been at a constant tug of war with these countries and a lot of sort of atrocities have been committed throughout history from different countries trying to acquire the Korean peninsula. And I, I sort of wanted to, like, if you go back into my mom's generation or her parents' generation, I mean, that was under Japanese occupation in Korea. So my grandparents were raised in a system where they were trying to get rid of Korean culture and identity completely. So they went to school in Japanese, like my, my grandfather could still read and write completely in Japanese because that was what he was taught. So I... I, I thought it was interesting and I wanted to explore it. I wanted to do it um, thoughtfully and reasonably. And I had a, a really wonderful Japanese author who was a beta reader who was making sure everything was done thoughtfully and uh, well. And I, I had a really wonderful time exploring the history of Japan and also getting to visit Japan. Uh, that was very important to me to get to spend a good bit of time there and expose myself to the culture and uh, learn how to cook. I, I wanted, that's always a point of pride for me. Everything that I describe in books that I'm writing uh, and any food that I describe, I have tried to cook because I want to make sure I'm, I'm doing it justice. And again, food for me is, is, a, is a, it's a love language. So um, yeah, that's why I elected to do that. And, and uh, it's sort of like, I know it was marketed as like a Mulan uh, meets, I think I said Mulan meets 47 Ronin because I've loved Japanese like folklore and this tale of the 47 Ronin is always something that I've, I, I've just loved as a kid. So uh, that's kind of where I was with Flame in the Mist. Yeah, awesome. Um, it's, it's definitely a insightful answer. <laughs> um, so Next, we will talk a little bit about um, the beautiful and also um, the genre of young adult historical fantasy itself or romanticy as um, it's starting to be coined. But um, so 
this most recent series, you dived into 19th century New Orleans um, and also incorporated vampires into it. So this is your third venture into this uh, romanticy, romanticy uh, genre. So what do you love about reading and writing in this genre? And why do you think it resonates with readers? And are there any challenges in weaving together such novels? I I think that it resonates with readers because I think especially in the last like you know I, I mean I guess for, for forever people have enjoyed being transported to different times and places um I've loved that and it's one of the things that I've enjoyed a lot about history and I feel like history our past informs our present and if you're intelligent uh should then educate us for the future um, and that's been one of the reasons why I've loved, um, exploring history, because I think you see so many explanations for why the, th the things are the way they are, um, when you look to the past, and you also can look to the past to sort of course correct, sort of see where like, and, and I think about our country and the current state of our country and the current state of politics in our country. And I think of how important it is to then turn back to history on, on many different levels when you're talking about, you know, people trying to, you know, uh, and like like what Ron DeSantis is trying to do in Florida right now with, you know, getting rid of AP, African-American uh, history, um, not letting people teach uh, aspects of our history that uh, that uh, the white majority find unsavory. I, um, I have so many thoughts when it comes to that. And you can look back to our past and you can look back to something like Louisiana specifically. I think Louisiana is uh, a fascinating case study in what's kind of happening right now, because um, specifically New Orleans, following the Civil War, um, before Reconstruction and Jim Crow took place and sort of like the South moved to codify racism, because now, you know, uh, uh, black people were supposed to be allowed, you know, they were, they were now no longer considered slaves, but then how do you consider them voters? And that was alarming to people because they didn't want their former slaves to be voting because they wouldn't be voting with their, with their overlords, you know, like, you know, goals in mind or anything like that. And I think that I, I'm sorry, I have an alarm going off in the back. Let me make sure they turn it off. <laughs> no problem. I think that she got it. All right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, so I lost my train of thought. So in New Orleans, uh, post-Civil War, uh, before Jim Crow was codified into law, um, New Orleans was always a city that was very much a melting pot. You had people from many different cultures who were sort of intermarrying. You had a very large, they had names for them. They had quadroons, octoroons, people who were mixed blood, one-fourth uh, Black, one-eighth Black. You had um, uh, Spanish influence there. You had, uh, it, was, it, it was as a major port city in the United States, a, a big hub of cultural identity. And before Jim Crow com came into place, um, they were sort of making spaces to, to integrate their society, even, you know, like, like immediately after that. And for a brief time, Louisiana had a half black governor. And you sort of think to yourself, if they were already moving towards this naturally, uh, um, what would have happened if we as a country had not codified our racism into law and put segregation into place, um, which then delayed any sort of integration of our society for another 150 years, basically? Um, I, I mean, I would you could even argue that that integration has, still has not successfully occurred. 
Um, and so I, I think looking back to the past and realizing that this idea of sort of denying the necessary growing pains that uh, everybody should have when they're letting history inform their present, um, it's not it's not going to be helpful for us in the future. So I think I totally this was a, a big what, were, what was the original question? <laughs> I know there were a couple of them. <laughs> it was just about um well, what you love about this historical fantasy um, genre and why it resonates. Um, and also if there was any challenges with um, writing in the genre. So I guess you could also touch on the fantasy aspect, how incorporating that into history um, works. I love fantasy because that it's a place where anything's possible. Your imagination can run wild because you're not constricted by like reality. You don't have to worry about like, so when you can always, there can always be a dragon. There can always be some sort of magical element. There can always be a, 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 a hole in the wall that disappears into another dimension or another world. And I love that. I love writing from a place of ultimate possibility. Um, and again, I think it, it resonates with people because it's escapist and it's transportive, sometimes literally. Um, I've, uh, I think the challenges with historical fantasy are obviously to do the historical period you're writing in justice. And sometimes that means drawing attention to unsavory facets of it. I don't ever want to be one of those authors that uh, romanticizes a uh, period in history to the detriment of the, like, I think of one of the books that I loved when I was a, a young girl was Gone with the Wind. And I talk about this all the time and I'm not ashamed to talk about it. I was raised in the South. Um, I, uh, I loved the story of Scarlet and Red. And for me, it was a romance, right? So the movie, the books, I loved it. But it's a book that I think, um, you can look at when, when looking back on it with a critical eye, you can see sort of the damage it's done, not sort of, definitely the damage it's done in romanticizing this idea of the antebellum self, which it did for me, absolutely. Um, and it, to, again, it's to the detriment that that's a, a very self-serving fantasy. And it is a fantasy because that idea of the South was only an idea for a, a very select portion of people who lived in the South. And I, uh, I don't ever want to um, write a book that romanticizes something, even though I'm writing romantic fantasy, and doesn't draw clear attention to the fact that this society didn't work for everybody. And there were people who were um, lost or misplaced or um, mistreated. Um, they were enslaved, um, treated as, you know, like less than, I mean, they were treated as property. And I wanted to make sure that was included in my book and that there were people again from you can see in in the beautiful series it was it's an ensemble cast of people from all around the world which was very important to me because that's what I wanted to read I wanted to see more of that in young adult fiction so mm -hmm. yeah understood okay and then uh to wrap up with our last main questions uh I guess this is definitely a big overarching question, but what does your work really mean to you? And what common goal or theme amongst all your works do you hope readers take away the most from? Well, my work is, is it's, it's everything. It's, it's, it's basically what's going on in my mind. Um, and it's sort of, you know, what's going on in my mind, what's going on in the world around me, the things that I see, the things that I value. Um, inevitably work their way into whatever you're writing. Uh, writing is itself a political act, which is why I'm I'm very 
um, uh, I, I, I side eye people who say they they write, you know, from a colorblind place or, uh, you know, they don't put any agenda in there. They don't have any politics in there. I, I, I call BS on that because writing itself is a political act. Um, everything I think and believe makes its way onto the page. And writing a story is writing, uh, uh, it's, it's about convincing people. It's about convincing them that the world you've written is real. These characters are real. Their thoughts and feelings are valid and that you see yourself and see a portion of yourself in these characters and can understand even if you don't agree with what's going on. And I, that makes my writing to me incredibly important because it's leaving behind what uh, my thoughts and feelings on the time that the book was written in. And I hope that readers who read it get that and I hope that they um also naturally enjoy a story that has uh uh characters of different um backgrounds and different walks of life but doesn't necessarily that's not the focus of the story I think books that are um written with a very clear intention one of the books that I think of um, all the time with this that I think was just so brilliantly done and so wonderful. I think of Angie Thomas's um, The Hate You Give. That was a very, it was a cl very clear message in that book. And that message was the driving factor behind the book. And these, we, we call them in the industry issue books. I love issue books. They're necessary. I want more of them. I think drawing more and more attention to these things that are part of our, our past and part of our present um, and making them real, especially for the younger generations, is of paramount importance. But also, it's of incredible importance that you tell stories about people from different walks of life, where it, that's that's not necessarily the issue. They're they're going through life, they're loving, they're hurting, they're experiencing all the highs and lows of life as they are. And 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 I wanted to. Those are the sort of books that I wanted to write because those are the books I didn't have when I was growing up. I didn't have fantasy care, like stories all the fantasy stories I loved as kids were about white people. And um, I want th this generation and then also my kids' generation to not have that experience, to never, to, it's never a question to them that they can be the main character in a dragon book. Um, and that that dragon book isn't just about being Asian or something like that, you know, like it's about, it's about something much bigger. Yeah. And just thank you for the impact you've had on our modern publishing industry already with your own books. So I think that's a really beautiful message. Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, and lastly, do you have any advice for young writers today? Um, You need to drown out the noise. There's a lot of noise. And I feel like the amount of noise only gets louder and bigger and more expansive over time. I mean, I was writing in an era where social media was really sort of in its infancy. Um, I remember like early on in my career when Twitter was sort of like the main, like sort of water cooler, even before it became like a super toxic place. But the the per performative aspect of people's career, I think is really, um, we're getting, we're, we're seeing more and more of that with like TikTok and Instagram. There's so much noise. Um, if you want to be effective as a storyteller and if you want to be able to finish a book, like actually butt in chair, write your story, you need to drown out the noise. But then knowing when to drown out the noise is just as important as knowing when to let it in so that you can grow as a writer. So finish your book, um, get it out there. Um, 
get people to read it, listen to what they have to say, even if it's uncomfortable. I'm not saying listen to the trolls. The trolls exist everywhere. Like even with your, the thing that you love the most, the most perfectly written book, somebody's going to hate it. So uh, trolls exist everywhere. But for people who are trying to get into this industry, listen and grow and learn at that point, but know when to drown it out so that you can really focus on telling the story you want to tell. Um, otherwise you're just going to constantly be, um, it's a stop and start sort of situation because you're, you're allowing outside forces to dictate what you're doing and making it impossible to really sink your teeth. <laughs> I'm sorry for the vampire pun, sink your teeth into the story you're working on. Mm -hmm. Understood. All right. Our time is almost coming to a close. So, uh, I would invite you to feel free to use this remaining time to shout out any upcoming news, uh, releases, or just really anything under the sun to wrap this up. Um, well, so my book, uh, the fourth book in the beautiful series, The Ruined, is out this December. I'm really, really excited to share that with everybody. And it'll be the first time I'm touring since the pandemic. So that I'm excited, really excited to get to see readers. So um, if you haven't read The Beautiful, you'll be able to read it in its entirety, all four books come December. Um, I can't wait to hear what everybody, it's my homage to Anne Rice, my homage to all things vampire and fae and gothic. Um, it's uh, It's been such a labor of love. Can't wait to share that. I have a picture book coming out next year about a sloth that teaches manners. And then I have a, um, a women's fiction book uh, called Park Avenue that is a crazy rich Asians meet succession story that will be coming out in 2025. And that one is tentatively titled Park Avenue. So um, that one's been a, a real joy to work on as well. So a couple of things coming down the pipeline. All right, amazing. So that just about wraps up our time. Thank you so much, Renee, for just accepting to be here. And I hope everyone has enjoyed the very first episode. Um, and I will see you next time. Thank you so much, Christine. I really appreciate your time.